Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll talk with Gary White, author of the new book, Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes. Victories often are not permanent when it comes to the environment. Conservationists have to fight year after year in trying to persuade the state legislature not to do something that will have harmful effects or to do something that will have beneficial effects. We'll look at the history of Florida's portion of the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway and discuss poet Robert Frost in Florida. He would compose short poems at Christmas time, have them printed up, and then send them out to his friends. All that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Gay originally recorded the song Mercy, Mercy Me, The Ecology in 1971 for the album What's Going On. Unfortunately, when Eddie Vedder and The Strokes covered the song 35 years later, the environmental problems described in the lyrics still existed, and many of them are much worse today. Gary White is author of the new book Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. White is an award-winning reporter for the Lakeland Ledger. He's worked for several other Florida newspapers, and his writing has also appeared in magazines, including the Oxford American and Florida Travel and Life. A lifelong Floridian, Gary White enjoys spending time in the natural Florida, cycling, hiking, kayaking, and taking photographs. His love of Florida's natural environment inspired him to write Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes. I have lived all my life in Florida. I grew up in Brevard County, and I guess it wasn't until I was pretty well into adulthood that I started to really think about the environment, but I've seen so much loss of the natural history, natural heritage, natural wonders of Florida, and I knew there were other books on the natural history of Florida or the environmental history, but I didn't think anyone had done quite this approach of focusing exclusively on the conservation efforts and the people who were involved with them. Today, the words conservation and environmentalism are used interchangeably, but over the past century, views of what effective conservation of the environment entails have evolved. Yes, as I say in the book, the conservation 
movement in Florida began with a pretty specific aim. It was a group of people who were alarmed about the fact that birds, wading birds, were being slaughtered in the Everglades for their feathers, which were sold to hat makers in the north. And so there was that pretty narrow interest uh, that sparked that. And then since then, it's broadened to include so many other areas, uh, concern about invasive species, um, just protection of the land itself, not only the wildlife, the birds and other wildlife, but the land itself that they depend on for habitat. There's so much more understanding now of how uh, <clears throat> certain species have to have a certain kind of habitat. So uh, it's just broadened greatly over the last century or so. There are some great books focusing on particular aspects of the conservation movement in Florida, including Jack Davis's exhaustive study of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's work called An Everglades Providence, Stuart MacGyver's Death in the Everglades, the story of Guy Bradley, the first environmental martyr, and Paving Paradise by Craig Pittman and Matthew Waite. Gary White's book, Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes, is the first survey of the environmental movement in Florida from its earliest beginnings to the present day. We can say that the conservation movement, organized conservation movement in Florida, began March 3, 1900. That was the day that 15 people met at a house in Maitland and decided they were going to create what was then the Florida Audubon Society. And... Uh, Again, their purpose was largely just to bring attention to the slaughter of birds because there were no laws at that time to protect these wading birds in the Everglades. So their one of their highest priorities was to push the legislature to, to uh, enact laws that would protect birds. It was the home of Lewis and Clara Domerich where the Florida Audubon Society was founded. In his book, Gary White writes that one member of that group was particularly persuasive while influencing women to stop wearing feathers and sometimes entire bird carcasses on their hats. Mary Monroe, she was the, the wife of a renowned nature writer, Kirk Monroe, and uh, according to an early history of Florida Audubon Society, she was known to uh, accost women she met strangers on the street who were wearing hats adorned with bird feathers, which was extremely common at that time, and to lecture them on the cruelty that led to those feathers being on their hats. And uh, according to the early biographer, some of the women were so moved by what she said that they took off the hats and pulled off the feathers and changed their ways right there. From the work of naturalist William Bartram and ornithologist John James Audubon in the late 18th and early 19th centuries to the most contemporary discussions of climate change and water use, Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes, chronicles in detail the pivotal moments in our state's environmental movement as it developed. After the early, uh, the original priority of uh, enacting laws to protect birds, I'd say the next major stage was probably turning attention toward the preservation of the Everglades in South Florida. There have been schemes for decades to drain the Everglades. Networks of canals were dug to try to dry it up so that it could be used in a more valuable way. And uh, so that process started probably in the 1920s and lasted about 20 years before finally in 1947 
Everglades National Park was dedicated. Another milestone in the conservation movement was the successful effort to halt construction of the Cross Florida Barge Canal in January 1971. Gary White. As with the draining of the Everglades, uh, there had been hopes of creating a, a canal to bisect the peninsula of Florida going back into the 1800s. And those there were starts and stops along the way for years, and the project languished. Then uh, in the 1960s, uh, it, it gained steam again and got pretty well along before environmental groups, especially the Alachua Audubon Society, started to look, take a closer look at the details and realized that <clears throat> this was going to have a drastic effect on the two rivers involved, the St. John's River and the Oklawaha River. And from originally just a handful of people in the Alachua Audubon Society, it grew to a statewide effort to oppose that construction, and it was eventually halted after about a third had been uh, constructed. Building on the successes of the Florida Audubon Society, efforts at Everglades protection, and the halting of the Cross Florida Barge Canal, the environmental movement in Florida continued to grow in the late 20th century. Uh, I would say yes, in general, in the 1960s, that was a real awake, a time of awakening, not just in Florida, but across the country on environmental issues. Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, was extremely important in making average people realize that what we were the approach that society was taking was having seriously harmful effects on nature and animals so i would say this the 1960s definitely saw a uh, resurgence in the conservation movement in the late 1960s early 1970s saw the passage of a lot of the really important laws on uh, environmental protection in Florida and in the United States as a whole. After chronicling the history of conservation in Florida, a large section of Gary White's book looks at heroes of the movement. Some of the people that White identifies as environmental heroes are expected, such as Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and Nathaniel Reed, while others are less well-known heroes of the movement. Two of the people who probably wouldn't be very well known outside of uh, the conservation movement itself, uh, just to pick two out of many I could, uh, uh, one would be Johnny Jones. He was uh, a plumber from West Palm Beach who originally became a, a lobbyist in Tallahassee on behalf of a plumbing association, later started lobbying on behalf of a uh, wildlife group that was originally just a hunter's organization but broadened its scope. And during the late 1960s, early 1970s, he was instrumental in the passage of some of the really important conservation laws of that period. Another one I would mention is a man named Bill Partington from Winter Park. He is not well-known statewide, but he, again, was crucial during that same period, the late 60s and 70s, in just helping to establish a more scientifically grounded approach toward lobbying and uh, pursuing conservation goals. 
Another environmental hero identified by White is a familiar name, but he's not always identified with the conservation movement. He's the man known for his satirical novels, including Tourist Season, Striptease, and Skinny Dip. I would suggest that Carl Heisen should be considered a hero of the conservation movement. Um, he's not a traditional conservationist. He's not active in political areas or lobbying for laws, but uh, all of his novels that he's written since the mid-1980s have involved bringing attention to the degradation of, of the environment, the loss of the natural heritage of Florida, especially South Florida. And so by reaching such a massive audience, he, I would think, has made some people think about what's happening in Florida who might otherwise not have given it much thought. As the 21st century continues, environmental issues will be among the most important for Floridians to deal with. Gary White says that environmentalists in Florida today can benefit from learning about the history of the conservation movement. Well, one thing they can learn, I think, is that uh, what might at first seem like a hopeless or, or extremely difficult battle can be won. One example of that would be the, the opposition to the cross-Florida Barge Canal. It was a project that state leaders wanted, national leaders, business, powerful business people, and starting with just a handful of people in the Gainesville area, eventually opposition became strong enough and uh, gained enough attention that that was stopped. Um, and the same thing, I guess, with the very beginning of the movement, the um, alarm about the killing of waiting birds for their feathers for hats. That might have seemed at the time like almost a, an impossible quest to try to stop that. Uh, there were no laws to protect the birds. Florida was lightly populated. These hunters were out there out of view of everyone doing whatever they wanted. But starting with just 15 people meeting in a house in Maitland, they established the basis for raising awareness, pressuring the government to do something, and eventually the legislature passed laws, and before too long, that sort of unchecked slaughter of waiting birds disappeared. In his book, Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes, Gary White covers the entire history of the environmental movement, but he also reflects upon its present and future. Victories often are not permanent when it comes to the environment, and conservationists have to fight year after year in trying to persuade the state legislature not to do something that will have harmful effects or to do something that will have beneficial effects. One of the big challenges for the future for environmental organizations is attracting younger people to the cause. So many of the people from kind of the golden era, the 1970s, 60s and 70s either have died or are aging. And when you go to meetings of local Audubon or Sierra Club groups across Florida, what you'll see a lot of the time is just some retirees. And so those groups need to try to come up with strategies for attracting younger people to get them excited about the cause. 
Gary White is author of the book Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state. We impact the lives of Floridians today through a variety of innovative educational outreach projects, including this program. To support our efforts, please become a member of the Florida Historical Society today. Information is on our website at myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features historian Michael Gannon. During the 16th and 17th centuries, St. Augustine, Florida was regarded as part of the Caribbean world, and like other port cities of that world, St. Augustine was subject to pirate attack. In June 1586, the noted English corsair Francis Drake fell upon the city in 19 ships with 2,000 armed men. The Spanish defenders managed to hold off the pirates for two days, but ultimately had to flee into the surrounding woods. Drake thereupon seized everything of value and burned every structure to the ground. In 1668, another English pirate, Robert Searles, with a much smaller force, landed in the dead of night, similarly killing and plundering. He put approximately 60 Spaniards to the sword and looted all the principal government and church properties. Searles threatened to return, but never did. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Janie Gould recently spoke with Bill Crawford, author of the book Florida's Big Dig, The Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway from Jacksonville to Miami, 1881-1935. to President Harry Truman was inconvenienced once in Vero Beach, and the results were far-reaching. William Crawford, author of a book about Florida's intracoastal waterway, says Congress decided to widen and deepen it in 1945. Unfortunately, Congress didn't authorize the spending of any money. 1945 came and went, 1946 came and went, 1947, 8, 9, and then in the spring of 1950, two things happened. President uh, Harry Truman was cruising down the Florida Intracoastal Waterway in his presidential yacht, and the former Secretary of the Navy, John L. Sullivan, was also traveling According to the mayor of Vero Beach, Alex McWilliams, both yachts were grounded in the Vero Beach area. As a result of that, Congress got into action and in 1950 passed the necessary funding to increase the depth. Was this the presidential yacht, the Sequoia? Can't tell. There were several. In all likelihood, it was the Sequoia. Where was he going? Well, probably down to Key West. Had he been opposed to spending money for dredging up to that point? Yes, and even Congress 
the majority of Congress was opposed. How come? This is a long-standing issue whether or not Congress should be responsible for dredging and maintaining waterways or whether or not the states and local interests should be in charge of funding. Truman thought federal funds shouldn't be used for that until his own presidential yacht ran aground. Is that right? He was against the funding. It was not a high priority for him. How did he react? What do your records tell you? The records don't say except that soon after Congress finally approved the deepening of the waterway, eventually by 1960, the waterway was 12 feet deep all the way to Fort Pierce. And that allowed for boats of how big? Large yacht size and maybe some barge traffic, but not very large boats. At that time, boats were not near the size they are today. The uh, channel eventually was deepened to 12 feet. That was what is sometimes referred to as the controlling depth. It's supposed to be 12 feet today, but a lot of mariners will tell you that on many stretches of the waterway, it's not 12 feet, but it's supposed to be 12 feet. For at least a decade, Congress has seriously neglected the funding of the uh, Intracoastal Waterway. So it's still happening? It's still happening. Fortunately, we have some stimulus money. That stimulus money is uh, making up for a number of years of neglect. Let's go back to Truman for a minute. How long was he delayed in the Vero Beach area? He was delayed a few hours. Did he leave the ship? No. But he was impatient and a little bit upset? He was delayed. And this was very common in the early years, a lot of groundings because the waterway was not deep enough and not well maintained. So do you think it was a good object lesson for the president? Exactly. The kinds of things that Truman experienced, they're experiencing now in Georgia and South Carolina on the intracoastal waterways where get stuck all the time. So it's a constant battle to keep it navigable. Constant battle. If Truman's presidential yacht hadn't run aground when it did, what do you think would have happened? There probably wouldn't have been any funding because it was a big, big fight at that time. It's a fight that goes all the way back to the founding of the nation when people in Congress felt that inland waterways were local and state problems. They were not federal problems. Did Truman come this way again? I'm sure he did. And as far as you know, his ship never ran aground again? Not again. Once was enough to get Congress moving, right? Right. William Crawford is author of Florida's Big Dig, the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway. He practices law in Broward County. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Poet Robert Frost made national news in April 2006 with the discovery of the manuscript of the poem he wrote for the inauguration of President John F. Kennedy in 1961. In the bright sunlight that day, Frost could not read his poem, so he recited another one from memory. The one he recited, The Gift Outright, is possibly the only poem ever written during the many months Frost spent in Florida. Bill Dudley has this look at the poet's time in the Sunshine State. And further still with an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. In the courtyard behind an historic house in Key West, the voice of the poet is heard from a concealed speaker. Here Robert Frost liked to sit, sometimes reading, sometimes holding court. On one side, a small one-bedroom cottage where Frost sometimes stayed during later visits. The main house, which bills itself as the Key West Heritage House and Museum, was the home of Jessie Porter Newton, a local grand dam famous for hosting celebrities of all kinds at her frequent parties. Uh, as far as I can tell, this is the second oldest house on the island. 
oldest portion of this house dates from about 1834. Ray Sneath, administrator of the Heritage House, shows visitors the letters and Christmas cards Frost sent to Jesse. He would compose short poems at Christmas time, have them printed up, and then send them out to his friends. By the time the 60-year-old Frost first came to Florida in 1934, he had been a teacher, a farmer, an academic, and a world traveler. He'd won two Pulitzer Prizes for his pastoral and philosophical poetry, celebrating the values of his New England background. Frost and his wife Eleanor made that first trip south on the advice of her doctor. He came down, he said, for his wife's health. She said he just came down for the fishing. Key West writer David Caulfield. When I came down here... 30 years ago or so, and found out that he had been here, I said, oh, of course he had been, because he has a Kiwa sensibility, his honesty, his truthfulness. The Frosts also rented a house in Coconut Grove, where he lectured at the University of Miami. But three years later, Eleanor died while the two were in Gainesville. Frost continued coming to Florida, and in 1940 bought a woodsy five-acre plot in South Miami. It would be the site of his Miami home, Pencil Pines. I saw him frequently from the time I was born every year, so he was pretty much a constant presence, and my impression was of a kindly old man who was very good to me, whom I felt to be part of the family. Miami attorney William Muir's parents became close friends with the poet in the early 1940s. He would come visit at our house, and I would go over with my parents to his house. It was a great forest experience. He would walk around and show me things. He planted the area with different trees and tropical vegetation. Frost settled into a lifelong routine, coming south each year to Miami and Key West to read and lecture at universities and relax with the locals, including the working people. He was a person who very much enjoyed unpretentious people, people who were interesting, and he had all kinds of relationships with people who were real working people. There was a barbecue place at the corner of McDonald Street and Grand Avenue in Coconut Grove. There was a black man who ran the barbecue, and Frost always made it a point to go there. You know, he was not like Hemingway, who wanted to be out in front all the time and sort of be the center of attention. I think he just sort of liked to come and get together with some of his friends and just keep it very low-key while he was down here. These friends included literati like poet Wallace Stevens, Tennessee Williams, and John Dos Passos, as well as other guests at Jesse Newton's table. Jesse loved to put people with different perspectives together, and there's a story about her having a dinner party in which she put Robert Frost sitting right next to Sally Rand, and you wouldn't think of two people who are much more different. But according to Jesse, both were impressed by the other's talents. I think it set him free here from that New England sensibility. You know, it's pretty tight up there. Robert Frost has been called a poet with a keen sense of human tragedy. Certainly there was plenty of this in his own life, including mental illness, childhood death, and suicide. These might have been some of the things that formed a bond between the poet and his Florida family. My parents lost a child in 1944. The loss of that little girl, whom Frost knew, probably was something that drew my parents and him together more closely. He was always developing these themes of human loss in his work, and I think that it was part of his personal exploration. Robert Frost died in 1963, having spent 29 winters in Miami and Key West. Some scholars have wondered why Florida is never mentioned in the poet's work. Florida was not the theme of his work. His work was filled with symbols, and there was a particular kind of 
world that formed the framework that he had been working with and writing about for a good long time. The question is a little bit like asking why a particular painter doesn't paint in a different style. He didn't see himself as a Florida writer. He saw himself as a writer whose theme and whose colors were drawn from his New England heritage. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.